Welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining us, we've got Joel Simons. Joel originally grew up on Orkney and then came down to the mainland, became a paramedic in 2010. He worked on 3RU for a few years, which is the Edinburgh Cardiac Arrest Response Car, potted overseas to the Middle East and spent some time there working as a flight paramedic and search and rescue crew. He's done some events work in the past and is now working for the Scottish Ambulance Service as an advanced practitioner of critical care. And online, he describes himself as being sweary, hairy and berry, which I think is probably a bit of a first for, for this podcast. Joel, welcome. Thanks very much for joining us. Hi, you're very welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. So everyone has experienced humour, I guess. But what made you interested in dark humour and, and how we use it? So I got into, uh, into this idea originally actually sitting in my barbers. So I think, yeah, Sweary, Harry and Barry has, has clearly taught me a lesson not to write too much on the internet about myself. But I am fairly hairy and I like going to my barbers. They're cool. They don't do small talk. But I was sitting in my barber's chair and the guy says to me, well, you're a, you're a paramedic. And he asks me that question that everybody gets asked, which is, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And I think we've all been asked this question. And I think most of us who work in pre-hospital care or you know, emergency medicine, we've all developed some methods for dealing with that question because it's, it's not a good question to be asked. And normally I would say in that situation, oh, the worst thing I've ever seen is my payslip or, you know, diarrhea or something like that. But I figured, you know, I've got, I've got 30 minutes of sitting in this guy's chair while he cuts my hair. I'll explain to him why that's not okay. And so I explained, you know, when you ask me to recount those stories to you, you're asking me to relive the worst moments of somebody else's life and definitely some of the most distressing moments of mine. I said, what you're actually asking, I think, is why you must have some really good stories. And I think we really do have some good stories. But recently, with the increased push in paramedicine towards academia, the idea of story and anecdote has been diluted a little bit. And that concept of shared experience of this is a thing that I experienced and you could learn from it has started to fall out of vogue slightly. And I think stories are really important. I think stories let you learn things and they give you an insight into other people's learned experience. So I really, if it's all right with you, just wanted to share a couple of stories that made me think about humour and got me to the point that I'm looking at it from today. Yeah, absolutely. Smashing. So so the first story that I want to tell you is about a guy called Caden. Caden was the son of some friends of mine, and he was awesome. He was this smiley, happy, sweet, goofy little boy. He had a big brother, and he had a little brother, and they just worshipped each other. And when you asked Caden what he wanted to be when he grew up, he would tell you that he was either going to be a drawer or a dinosaur guy or a pirate. And Caden took an obsession with piracy and the high seas to a level which verged on the pathological. His mum has an incredible video of him at four, like running through the kitchen and shouting, I've got the rum, I've got the rum. Pirates of the Caribbean was everything to Caden. It was his lifeblood. 
And at six years old, Caden became very, very sick. His parents, one afternoon, found him collapsed on the bathroom floor. And he'd been really grouchy and under the weather for most of that day. He'd vomited a couple of times. And when his parents found him collapsed, they, they called an ambulance. And when the crew arrived, they realised immediately that he was that he was critically ill. He was lethargic. And he had this horrible purple rash spreading across his body. And he spent six weeks in York Hill ICU battling this horrific meningococcal septicemia that he'd contracted. And in the first sort of early weeks of that time, people were reasonably hopeful that he would make a full recovery. And we got told that he would likely lose some peripheral tissue, you know, maybe some fingers, some toes, maybe the, the tips of his nose or his lips. But all the way through, there was this feeling that he would make it and that he would have scars, but that scars would heal. And there was a there was a mob of us that moved into the relatives room in York Hill ICU. And I don't really know what other relatives did during those six weeks, because they certainly didn't have access to the relatives room while we were there. We, we monopolized that place for the whole time. And, you know, people would come and go and you know, life sort of went on outside ICU. There were kids to run back and forth to school and errands to do and, and bills to pay. And, and folk would folk would sort of slope in and out of the room as we went. But there's then this one afternoon when we're all sitting in that rally's room and Caden's mum and dad were asked to step out. And when they came back, they'd had some really horrific news. They'd been told that the surgeons had made the decision that the best course of action would be to amputate his left arm and left leg. And it wasn't just that the limbs were beyond saving, but it was felt that this was now a necessary procedure to, to save Caden's life. And so they came back and broke this news to us in the relatives room. And this is devastating news. And it's it wasn't just devastating news because this was a family hearing that their small child was going to go through massive surgery. But it was devastating because it changed the rules of the game. Because up until then, we'd had this idea that he might come back home with some minor scarring. But actually, now the best option that was on the table for recovery was a life-changing disability. That was the best outcome that we were allowed to hope for at that point. And the grief in the room is absolutely palpable. And some people are silent, and some people are weeping. And then this one woman, a lady called Amber, who's a very, very close friend of the family, she starts to laugh. And people look at her slightly askance and she looks up and she's wiping her eyes and she says, I'm just, I'm really, really sorry. She says, I, I, I don't mean to laugh. It's just, if ever there was a kid who would be delighted to wake up with a hook and a wooden leg, it's going to be him. Right? <laughs> 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 and there's, and there's laughter, there's laughter in the room and the place, the place just cracks up. But I want you to imagine, just for a minute, though, I want you to imagine that the surgeons having that conversation with Caden's parents outside the room, imagine if they'd used that joke during that discussion. You know, this would be, it would be completely distasteful. You know, we'd have them struck off. We'd drag them through the media. But there's an interesting dichotomy here because it was funny for us in that relative's room back then, and it was funny for us just now when we shared that story. But we're very, very clear that those two groups shouldn't share that joke. His care providers and he as a patient and his patient's family shouldn't share that joke together. Those rules are very, very clearly written. So 
that's story one. And I'd like to talk to you about story two as well, if, if that's all right. Absolutely. So story two reflects back. You mentioned earlier on that I that I used to work on 3RU. So 3RU is, is Edinburgh's cardiac arrest management car. And I want you to imagine that it was November. This is many, many years ago now. But it's November, and it's one of those November days where you know, the sky is gray and the buildings are gray and the rain is gray and it's coming down the back of your collar no matter how hard you zip up your coat. You know, you know these days, right? And I've been called as 3RU to a hanging. And I've been called to this hanging in a high-rise tower block. And many of us who work in, in pre-hospital care will have been to jobs like this and we know that the outcomes are, are very rarely positive. But I pull into the street outside this tower block and an ambulance arrives at the same time. And I see that this ambulance is crewed by a very experienced paramedic and a very, very new student technician. And the police kind of usher us upstairs and we, we get in the lift and we go up onto the 16th floor. And it's clear as soon as we get onto the 16th floor that there's going to be nothing to do. You know, the, the neighbours have started to complain about a smell. The, the post is starting to pile up behind the front door. And this gentleman has, has used a, a wire coat hanger um, to loop over a pull-up bar in his kitchen doorway and has hung himself some weeks prior. And there's an appalling scene. You know, it's, it, it's not clear whether the, the flies are worse than the smell or the smell is worse than the flies. But, you know, there's, there's a letter to his mum on the kitchen table, which I stupidly start reading and then immediately regret because it just says that, that he loves her and that he's sorry. And there's nothing for the, us or the crew to do but to fill out a PLE, a Pronunciation of Life Extinct Form. And so myself and the paramedic and the technician, we get back in the lift and we all go downstairs and we talk the student through how you fill out a PLE. And then we go and get back up in the lift and we start heading back up to the 16th floor. And it's while I'm in the lift, I look over at the technician and I realize that he is really quiet and he's really pale and his respiratory rate is up just a little bit. And his Adam's apple kind of trembles in his throat when he speaks and it strikes me that this is probably, you know, the worst thing that he's ever seen. And and I would almost have that phrase in my head as having capital initial letters, you know, the worst thing I've ever seen. And we've all got a worst thing that we've ever seen. And the problem, I think, with working in emergency care is that it never goes away. It just gets replaced or superseded by the thing I just saw that it turns out is worse than the thing that I thought was the worst thing that I've ever seen. You know, we, we spend our lives in this kind of horrible game of top trumps. It's always worse. So I give the student a little sort of reassuring smile and he returns a much smaller smile in return. And just as the doors of the lift are about to open up, his partner, this very experienced paramedic, leans over and goes, I'll give you 50p if you lick him. <laughs> and i am i am desperately pounding on the doors closed like doors closed doors closed doors closed doors closed button because because otherwise the two like the three of us like like naughty school children are about to tumble out onto the landing giggling in front of this scene of, of, of horror and devastation right and so i think we've got two very clear stories there of two very different situations. And there's, there's an amazing paper, which, which we can share the citation for, by an author called Williams, who spoke about these sort of three phases where paramedics particularly operate. 
And the argument by Williams is that we operate on stage and off stage and backstage. And they say that, you know, on stage is when we're delivering care, when we're we're face to face with patients. And off stage is when we're out of role. So we're at home or we're with friends or, or family who don't work in the same sphere as us. And in this on stage and off stage position, that humor, that dark humor is really inappropriate. It's not well received. It's not well accepted and it's offensive or it's just not well understood. And that's because those people, our patient group or our families or people who don't work in, in the job, they don't share our experiences. They don't have that mindset of humor. And I think just because we serve that community, it doesn't mean that we should be sharing that humor with them. But that third space that we spoke about, that backstage space, this is a really safe and sacred and private place. And that's a place where it's just you and your colleague. So that's in the mess room or in the vehicle cab or, you know, in the staff room of the department. And that's a really sacred space to work in because it's a space where everybody involved in the discussion and the joke, they understand the source of the humor and they understand the stress and the pressures that the people who are cracking those jokes are under. There's so much of context about you know, both those stories you told and the, the context in which that they're given, yes, one pace removed from from the grim reality of, of the job that, that unfortunately waits mm. for you once those doors open. Entirely. Absolutely. I think one pace removed is exactly the right way to describe that. Precisely. Why do we do it? Why do we laugh? Why is it good for us? Is yeah, for I, us? You know, I really think it is good for us. And why we laugh was something that, that I got really interested in and started going off and doing some digging on. And I did a little look into the, the philosophy and the anatomy and physiology, effectively, of laughter. And it turns out we have these three different models of laughter and humor and comedy, I suppose. And the first model that I'd like to talk about is this concept of incongruity. So that's where the situation that you're faced with is suddenly flipped about and you find yourself facing a situation that you thought wasn't happening or that's, that's unexpected. So with Caden's parents and family and loved ones in there, it's really incongruous to think about, you know, the delight that Caden would have felt to be able to have a wooden leg and a hook because that's, that's completely at odds with our grief and shock at the news that we've received. And similarly, I think in that lift, it's totally incongruous to take that awful sensory psychological onslaught of a body in a filthy flat and flip it around to a really stupid, low stakes, you know, playground bed. And then there's a second theory of humor that talks about relief. And I really like the relief theory. And I think it starts to tie in quite closely with our work looking after patients. So biologically, when we laugh, your body gets flooded with endorphins. You know, it reduces your release of stress hormones. And not only that for you, but psychosocially, your laughter is sort of a response to, to increasing tension in the room. And it's a signal to everybody else, so to the rest of your caveman tribe around you, that, that everything's all right. So if we're faced with a situation that we can't quite reconcile and where we're not quite clear what the next step is, we feel this, this rising tension inside us. And this is great. This is just your, it's your caveman brain 
keeping you safe. So if you and I go for a walk through the forest and we hear something rustling about in the bushes, now that might be a bunny or it might be a tiger. And between the two of us, we'll feel that rising tension until one of us figures out if it's safe. And when you see that it's a bunny, you'll feel that tension be released. You'll feel that relief and you'll laugh. And my hearing your laughter will communicate to me that it's definitely not a risk. It's nothing that we need to be afraid of. It signals to everybody else in the room that everything is okay. And I think there's a really interesting illustration of this where if you can think about a situation where someone's told you a joke that you just didn't get, you know, you've, you've followed the, the setup and then you get the punchline and the punchline doesn't land and you don't get the joke. That horrible feeling afterwards of uh, what? Like, I don't get it. I don't understand. Help me, help me figure out the next step through. This is because you haven't had that relief and your caveman brain is in there going, ah, dude, that might still be a tiger. Don't know. Haven't proved it yet. It sort of reboots us socially. But then there's a third theory. And the third theory, I think, is, is where your point about being one pace removed, which I think is a great way of explaining that and defining that, I think this third theory is where that comes in. And that's this theory of, of superiority. And this theory says that we laugh at other people's failings to make ourselves feel better. So we distance ourselves from other people's misfortune. So... The Germans call this Schadenfreude, right? And this is not a new concept at all. So Aristotle apparently wrote in his diaries that he really enjoyed seeing beggars in the street because they reminded him of his own success and comfort. <laughs> I, I know, absolutely. So, well, you gentlemen. know, Aristotle, founding father of philosophy, also kind of a tool. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this, this sense of superiority that we have, it's why we gossip and bitch about people. Now, it's a really basic human response to always want to be one step up the ladder from other people. And this makes us sound like really, really horrible folk. But I think there's a really solid survival instinct at play in here. So, for instance, if I show you a plate of rotten food, and then immediately ask you if you'd like to go out for lunch, you're likely to decline, right? Your feelings of appetite will be suppressed. And that's because your caveman brain has seen that rotten food and has told you, no, you're not hungry right now. Don't eat that. That's poison. I mean, you might underestimate how much I like that. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know I what the difficult. catering facilities are like at your place of work. But, you know, you, you, you see this stuff and you, you push yourself away, right? You grant yourself some distance. And psychologically, if we look at people with PTSD, for instance, one of the signs and symptoms or the signs of PTSD is a sensation that your own life might be cut short. So sometimes people talk about a flash forward rather than a flashback. It's a sensation that you're likely to die before you achieve your goals. So, you know, before you settle down and marry or before you see your kids grow up or before you retire with your other half or whatever. Now, I think if we think back to that story in the lift with that ambulance crew. I think it's really clear that what's happening there is the three of us are using superiority humor to protect ourselves from what's going on. And what we're doing is we're saying, we're not dead, but that guy is. So that makes us better than him. And I know that sounds awful, but I think what it's doing is it's pushing distance in between us and him. 
and it removes or reduces the chances of our brain imagining ourselves one day being in such an awful position. Because I don't want, my brain doesn't want to imagine that as being me because it knows how damaging that would be for me. Does that make some sense? Yeah, and it chimes because a lot of the time we, even when you're there with a patient, actually the humour on one level sort of pulls the team together and bonds with the patient, that infectious laughter sort of breaks down the fear that the patient has. But on another level, actually, there's definitely some reinforcing of the fact that we're making these jokes because we are probably more in our comfort zone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, I think that's a really brilliant example of ways in which these different models can work together. You know, you're, you're making a joke with a patient and helping that patient feel that relief. You're, you're telegraphing to them, hey, look, this is going to be okay. Yeah. Or it's, it's not as bad as we fear it is because, look, we're all having a laugh. And if this was terrible, we wouldn't be laughing, would we? So the patient gets some psychological protection and benefit from there. But you're right. In the same way, you're only able to make those jokes because you are comfortable in that environment and because this is familiar to you. And by making it even more familiar and comfortable, it makes you a better clinician and you're better able to take care of that patient moving on. Well, that makes sense. I guess the problem is that there's always that line. How do we know what's acceptable? What is humour the right tool to use in all the circumstances? It feels like a, a kind of a, a high-risk strategy. You know, I, I, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it is a high-risk strategy and I think it needs to be used really, really carefully. I think... Again, it depends on the discipline that you're working in. But I think if you're working in emergency care or if you're working in pre-hospital care where you're going to see a patient for maybe you know an hour, two, three, four hours before they get moved on to the next tier of care or before you, you discharge them, it's really important that you are able to move on and reset at the end of that care episode so that you're ready for the next one. Because your next patient is going to call you and what they don't need is you to arrive still screwed up about what you saw an hour and a half ago or what you experienced an hour and a half ago. So that ability to reset, to go back to zero and go, okay, I'm ready for the next call, I think is absolutely essential. So I think it's really valuable, but I think it has to be used really carefully. And if you think about, if you think about Caden's family back in that room versus myself and my colleagues in that lift, we are at two very separate ends of a, of a spectrum there. And I have a theory about this. And I, I think about this almost as like a black hole. So bear with me. I'm, I'm going to go all Patrick Moore on you for a minute, right? But <laughs> so if you imagine your black hole and in the center of the black hole, in the, the absolute epicenter of it, that's where the bad thing has happened. That's the, the illness, that's the accident, that's the, the bad news, that's the patient. And right at the center of that, that's where the grief and the horror is at its most acute and its most intense. And the person who's in that center, they get to engage with that horror in any way they please. So they can laugh, they can weep and wail, they can reach out to friends and family, or they can lock themselves away in the dark. And we as a society, we accept a bad thing has happened to you. <sighs> Dude, you do you, yeah? You look after yourself, whatever. But then around that center of the black hole, if you can imagine a, a series of concentric circles, like kind of ripples in a pool, 
So immediately around the centre, then you've got the patient's family, for instance. And then outside that, then their friends. And then maybe outside that, their colleagues and then their wider community. And each of those circles responds to the horror in the centre in their own different way. So patients and families, they're right in the middle and they get to heal by being right in the middle. But way out on the edge with all the distance that they can possibly achieve, that's where medical staff heal, I think. That's where we've achieved such emotional distance from what's going on at the center of that black hole that that's where we can find our safe places. And that would work just fine, but that means that emotionally distant should be our standard of practice. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be emotionally distant with my patients. So when you, you know, when you walk through the front door of a family whose kid is having a fit, you know, and that parent says, oh, thank God you're here and passes you their baby. They don't want to feel that you're emotionally distant. They want you involved. They want you completely invested in that child. And similarly, if you're working on a response unit and you're sitting with a little old lady who's fallen over at the bus stop and she's bust her off, and I know that these are tropes, but right, I don't care because tropes work, right? But if we are sitting next to her, you know, you're going to hold her <laughs> hand and you're going to ask her about her family and you're going to chat about holidays. Or, I mean, if you're in Morningside in Edinburgh, you'll offer to take her out for a gin and dancing once she's had her hip pinned, okay? But you'll get stuck in and you'll have a proper conversation and you'll make her feel better. Even clinically, you'll make her feel better because her analgesia will work better if she's relaxed with it. You know, she's going to reduce the amount of time she spends in hospital afterwards. Her whole patient experience will be better if the people who are looking after her are emotionally on side with her. And we do that and it's great. It's really great for patients. And it's absolutely knackering for care providers. It empties you out. So we're stuck in this really, really difficult position where you've got to stand close enough to the center of the black hole to be emotionally invested, but you've also got to be able to achieve escape velocity and get out to the edge of the black hole and get away and reset back to zero, ready for the next guy. So you've got to find that balance somewhere in the middle. And I think humor works exactly to achieve that. So if we think about our guy in the lift, what we were doing in that lift is we were racing away from the center of that black hole. We were using superiority humor amongst ourselves in that safe backstage place. And we were using it to achieve distance from the horror that we'd seen so that we could back away from it and not be affected. That makes good sense. Yeah, I think we've all been burnt by times when we've maybe not quite achieved that escape velocity and and been sucked in too far. And actually, no, doesn't no I, I, I really think it doesn't. And and you know what, you know, we could make ourselves feel better by saying that actually we're laughing with the patient, that we're so emotionally involved that, you know, we're able to laugh with and we, we share their pain to that extent. And that's clearly nonsense. That's absolutely not true. Because as we said earlier, if the surgeons in York Hill had come in and cracked that joke with us, then we would have torn them apart as a family. We can't all occupy that same space. And I think we need to be aware that when we crack these jokes, we are laughing at our patient circumstances. We're laughing at other people's tragedies. We are no better than Aristotle laughing at beggars in the street. And I think that's really uncomfortable. 
I think it's a difficult thing to sit with, but I think it's a truth that we should best examine and understand rather than shy away from and pretend it doesn't happen. Yeah, I think there's certainly something to that. And that knowledge that our humour is is our treatment. And if you know, if the patient gets benefit from it too, then fantastic. But fundamentally this is this is for yeah, us. That entirely. Entirely. This is backstage trick for us. We spend our lives in, in pre-hospital care and in emergency care, you spend your working life in intimate proximity to other people's tragedies. So yeah, I mean, they, they can literally make a free phone call and have you arrive into their house to witness their personal tragedies. We're going to see more dead bodies in a year than most people are going to see in a lifetime. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen statistics that say that symptoms of PTSD are statistically more common in emergency workers than they are in frontline combat troops. We get a steady drip, drip, drip exposure to other people's tragedies through our working time. And that drip isn't going to stop because the calls are going to keep coming in because bad things will continue to happen to people because that's the industry that we're in. And when those people call, they need not only a skilled clinician, but they need a really clear-minded, emotionally safe and stable rock that can give them some guidance at that time. Ha <laughs> I know. What can you Instead, do, they right? Get us. Lucky but, <laughs> But you know what? I I think our exposure to that drip, I think that gives us a right to make these jokes, to use that humor in places where we're not going to hurt people, you know, in that private backstage place where everybody knows the rules. Our exposure to that ongoing tragedy, I think, gives us the right to use tools to keep ourselves safe. And we carry the responsibility for everybody else's health and well-being, often, unfortunately, at the expense of our own. I think it's a part of working in this type of environment that we need to understand and examine. We've talked a lot about humour and, and its kind of benefits. What are the downsides? What, when, when can it go wrong? When, when does it cause problems? So I think, again, it, it comes back to that onstage, offstage, backstage issue. We are really afraid that, that the public will see our backstage conversations. And rightly so, absolutely. And they'll rightly misinterpret so. those because they don't have the other side of that picture. Yeah. And there's a risk that people will see it as cruel or cold or indifferent or exploitative. Whereas I think if you asked anybody who used dark humor in their workplace and asked them, you know, do you, do you genuinely feel that about your patient? or about what happened to your patient, they'd be horrified to think that that was actually their true response. So I think we we have to be careful. And I think particularly in this world of social media, where comments and jokes and memes can be shared online, I think we have to be exceptionally careful with what we write and what we say in a space that we might think is backstage, but actually is probably quite visible to the wider community. And often in that online sphere, certainly, there's a complete loss of the context. None of the nuance comes across. And that context means that what could be amongst the right group of people, quite an entertaining anecdote, quip, story to tell, suddenly falls, falls deeply flat. And worse than flat, flat, it comes across as... As I said, you know, mocking or derogatory, 
or, or harmful to other people. And you're absolutely right. It's about nuance and it's about context, but it's also about meaning. Because I think when we make these jokes to each other, we do a whole number of different things. But I think predominantly what we do is we're communicating within our tribe. And I'm going to come back to this concept of cavemen in ambulances because I think it's quite relevant. But we're communicating within this tribe in this kind of secret common language that we've got that really tightens up our connections with each other. So we're saying, I'm going to say this and anyone that doesn't know the rules will see it as X, but you know the rules and I know the rules. And so we translate it as Y. Yeah, it's our common slang between the two of us. And I think also when we retell stories and when we tell them in a humorous way, or when we make a joke out of something that's happened or that we've seen. I think sometimes what we're actually doing is we're redrawing an event that happened. And in redrawing that event and finding humor in it, it gives us some control and some power where actually in the moment we might have felt very much out of control and powerless. And it gives us a chance to think about that whole incident in a way that makes us feel more comfortable inside. But I think most, most importantly, what tends to happen when somebody cracks a joke between colleagues is they might actually be saying, do you know what? That one kind of got through and it's in my head and it won't get out. And I could really do with chatting it through with somebody. But that's quite a difficult thing to say out loud. So maybe if I crack a joke, maybe you'll engage me in discussion about it and we can actually get into the bit of it that's sort of on my mind and won't go away. It's an interesting concept that humour is a as a signpost to the jobs that absolutely that live with us, the uh, absolutely the um, in the closet. Because people don't always feel comfortable coming along and saying, "I need to bear my soul," or you know, particularly you know, if a job has gone wrong, if you feel like you've made a mistake, if you're not sure actually about what you did and if that was the right thing to do, if you're perhaps seeking a little bit of unofficial peer review. Going to find somebody and saying, hey, I'd like to tell you about something that I did that I think I might have screwed up and I'd like you to tell me if I was wrong or not. That's an incredibly vulnerable position to put yourself in. But coming to you and cracking a joke about a bad job that I've been at just opens that door a little bit. And it would give you as you know the recipient of that joke, it gives you an opportunity to laugh and for the two of us to feel that relief and to recognize that this is probably a bunny and not a tiger. And then while we're having that moment of laughter, it's a really easy and natural point for you as my colleague to go, that does sound pretty rough though, right? Did it go all right? And it's just enough sometimes to crack that door open and let people have the conversation that they're really looking for. Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of power in what you said there. Normally, at the end of these chats, we ask the mm. presenter to to give kind of top tips for folks to take yeah. away and kind of reflect in their own practice. Some takeaway points will be really useful for folk, but I, I, I'm not sure how much of it that we can change because a lot of it is very natural. It's very, very reliant. Yeah, I think on it's lived totally experience. reliant on lived experience and. And I think, as you said earlier, it's very much contextual. But I think the top tips to take away from this are 
to reflect on and to acknowledge that the humor that we've got is a really powerful tool and that it keeps us together as a tribe and it keeps us safe and it's a really strong protective factor and that we should be careful of being so embarrassed about it that we don't allow it to come to the fore. I think tip two is almost the flip side of that, which is to say that it's worth thinking about that on stage, off stage, backstage concept. And that often this humor needs to be used backstage. These are jokes to be made amongst people who understand the game, who know the rules and who are unlikely to misinterpret what you're saying as cruel or derogatory or offensive. And probably pe with people that you know well enough that if it does land badly, or they do think that you're cruel or derogatory or offensive, where you can easily say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to hurt anybody. Because I don't think any of these jokes that get made are ever intended to really hurt anybody. They're there to make our job easier for the benefit of the patient down the line. And then top tip three, I think, has to be that if a colleague cracks a joke about a job that sounds pretty extreme, or if they say something that you absolutely would not want to hear on stage or off stage or posted on social media, rather than immediately thinking to yourself, God, how unprofessional, or I want to distance myself from that, then find a quiet moment just to catch up with them and just go, dude, that sounded really, really grim. Are you, are you good? You okay? Awesome. You know where I am. And just use it as a way just to open up those conversations because a lot of the time these jokes are people putting up a flair that they could really do with a chat. Joel, that's fantastic. I think we have giggles over the years. Um, yeah, I think it's such a huge area of all of our work and particularly the pointy end of our work and those bad jobs. It's really interesting to hear your thoughts and your, your dissection of it as a concept and quite how integral it is to who we are it's, and how we work. It's, it's absolutely been my pleasure uh, to, to discuss so it. I will, I will talk to anybody at length about this stuff. And yeah, you are very welcome to, to give me a shout. I'm on Twitter at JoelSimons999. Ping me a message and always happy to chat this stuff through. Perfect. Brilliant. And we'll get a link up to that paper that you referenced. No problem at all. Then. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. Take care. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.